Our text this morning is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the first letter, or really the first prophetic message, if you will, to the seven churches. There is no way to get from the transfigured and exalted Christ who we saw last week to the glory of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which comes at the end of the book. There is no way to get there except through the church in all of her glory and weaknesses. The churches intercede or intervene between Christ and his kingdom. And these messages in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are addressed somewhat curiously to the angels of a particular church. You can see that here in verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. It's a a curious thing to write a letter to an angel. But we saw last week that these angels are probably heavenly guardians or representatives of the church. And the significance of writing to the angel of the church is simply that John views the church as an earthly slash heavenly reality. In any event, it is clear that the actual church is on the ground, not simply the angel of the church. The actual church is the recipient of the book as a whole and of these customized letters. And so the first letter goes to Ephesus, which is a natural starting point for these letters. Ephesus was a major city, the major city, in Asia Minor, in the province where all these churches are. And Ephesus was the prominent church in the region. Ephesus served as something of a home base for the Apostle Paul. And tradition has it that John, the writer of the book of Revelation, after he was released from Patmos, where he is in exile, settled at Ephesus and lived out the rest of his life in Ephesus. Ephesus also had a strategic sort of geographic priority. It's the best port of entry into Asia Minor from Patmos. John's writing from Patmos. He has to get this letter inland into these churches. And so Ephesus would be the first city that one encounters on a sort of clockwise route for delivering the book to all the seven churches. And so we'll look at the text under five headings. Uh, Christ, then the commendation, And then third, rebuke and warning. And fourth, the Nicolaitans. And then exhortation and promise. So first, Christ. All the letters, you'll you'll notice this in all seven of them. They all come from the transfigured Christ, the vision of whom we saw last week. And the way he is described at the opening of each of the letters... The features of that vision from last week that are picked out are crucial to the matters he wants to address the particular church about. So here John is commanded to write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Christ holds the heavenly host, including the guardians of the church, in his right hand indicating 
his sovereign rule over, and his protection of his flock. He's got the whole heavenly world in his hands. He's got the whole invisible world in his hands. And that he walks among the seven lampstands, we saw last week that the lampstands are the churches, means that he's in our midst. And this presence of Christ in our midst, it's why we are here. Otherwise, this is simply a social gathering of like-minded people. And this presence, as we shall see in the letters, can be both unnerving and comforting. In fact, it's rarely one without the other. Because the Christ that we saw last week is scary good. So, the second point is the commendation. The Lord affirms all the churches. He knows they need affirmation, they need correction, and they need motivation. In one sense, those are the three points of all seven letters. Affirm, correct, motivate. And that's what the Lord does here. And so here he's commending the churches. All of them start with words like, I know. The one, we saw this last week, the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, pierces and penetrates into our true condition. He knows. He discerns. Not just you or me as individuals, but he discerns the state of the congregation. And so while there's no letter to Westminster Presbyterian Church, we already saw that these seven churches stand in for the whole church. We can be assured then, we can be assured that this same Christ walks among us. He holds our congregation's heavenly guardian in his right hand and he knows our state. And thus we can be assured that these letters will be addressed to and challenging to us as a people. Here in Ephesus, Christ knows three things, the text says, their deeds, their hard work, and their perseverance. This is very high commendation. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. Right? This is the same Jesus who when John saw him, he fell down as dead. And that Jesus says to the congregation in Ephesus, I know your work. You, you, this is a vigilant, disciplined community. And their vigilance seems, if you look at the text, the vigilance seems particularly related to matters of truth or doctrinal purity. You can see that in the rest of verse 2. You cannot tolerate wicked men, but you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and you found them false. Of course, the twelve are apostles, but the term was used more broadly in the early church for those who would be sent out. The word apostle simply means one sent. So these, these people here are not claiming to be one of the twelve apostles. They're claiming to, to be sent out by the churches in an apostolic way. And some of these people apparently are afflicting or foisting themselves on the Ephesian church. 
You might remember in the book of Acts, Paul, when he was at Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, tells the, calls the elders from the church of Ephesus to himself. And he tells them, after I leave, ravenous wolves are going to come in and seek to destroy this church. And that's exactly what's happened now. Notice a couple things here. First, they tested. They tested those who claimed to be apostles. These are not naive people at Ephesus. They test things. Now, you could do this basically in three ways. You could test their doctrine, their teaching, to see if it's in accord with the apostolic faith. You could test their lives. By their fruits, you will know them. You could even test their alleged commissions from other churches because apostles are sent. Who sent you? What church? And the Ephesians did this vigilantly, and they found that these men who claimed to be apostles were liars. The second thing to note, not only are these men false apostles, they're here in the text called wicked. We should make no mistake about this. False teaching, false teachers are evil. This stuff harms the flock for which Christ shed his blood. And so this is a high piece of praise. And the commendation continues in the same vein. In verse 3, you've persevered, you've endured hardship for my name. This means they face pressure, external pressure probably, and they haven't denied the faith. So you can get the overall picture. They're laboring, they're diligent, they're standing up to surrounding cultural pressure. They contend vigorously for the faith. They have not, verse 3 says, grown weary. So the third point, then, is the rebuke and the warning, or if you will, the correction from the Lord. The Ephesian church has forsaken or left the love they had at first. It's a remarkable thing that they could have all these qualities. And then the Lord could say, you've forsaken or left your first love. Now, this could be love for God, love for one another. Or even love for people outside the church. Though all of those things, of course, they're connected. They're related to one another. The text is often understood, borrowing from Old Testament passages about Israel's losing their, her first love, it's often understood as describing a kind of departure. A serious departure from the church's first flush of devotion to Christ. Right, if you hear the phrase, you've left your first love, generally people mean something along these lines. It turns out that this is problematic because the passages used to support this in the Old Testament, notably Jeremiah 2, where the prophet accuses Israel of, of losing her first love, of leaving her first love, those are passages about Israel abandoning the covenant and committing idolatry, spiritual adultery. And the Lord comes to Israel and says, you've left your first love. But one thing's certain about this church in Ephesus, 
It has not capitulated to idolatry. Their situation is not akin to Israel's abandonment of her early devotion. So what does it mean then? What does it mean to say they've lost their first love? Well, the the accent here is almost surely on their failure to love other people inside and outside the church. They're like the people Jesus warned of in Matthew 24. Another sort of end time discourse when he said the love of many will grow cold. It might strike you as odd, this combination of commendation so robust and then this rather sharp correction. But see, churches concerned about doctrinal purity are always subject to this danger. There are always people and churches whose commitment to the truth whose passion for doctrinal correctness runs far ahead of their concern about loving other people. It seems like these two things are often found together. The guardians of orthodoxy, often self-appointed guardians, are sadly not generally known for their intense love of actual flesh and blood human beings. Right? They're defenders of the flag, protectors of the truth. And churches have to watch for this. This can have a debt, this, this kind of orthodoxy, concern for correct doctrine, which this church clearly had. You say you're an apostle, we're going to test you. This can have a deadening effect on interpersonal relationships. And this is a lethal defect in the church. It undoes everything. We'll see that in a bit. So there's an exhortation then in verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. And remembering here leads to repentance. And notice the text says, repent and do the things or the works you did at first. So repentance, you've lost your first love, Christ says to the church. And here's what he says. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do the works you previously did. So this is not a call, not a call about returning to the feelings or the first blush of loving emotion that they had when they first came to Christ. Right? Christ doesn't say to them, look, you need to conjure up more emotional devotion to me. He says, you've lost your first love. You need to do some things. You need to repent. But as with human love, those feelings, those first feelings, wonderful as they are, are not designed to last. They're generally a sign of the embryonic and immature nature of the love. Not a sign of its maturity. Right, So Jesus is not playing, you remember the Righteous Brothers song, you know, you've lost that love and feeling? That's not what Jesus is saying to the church here. He's not doing that. His prescription is repentance and doing the works they used to do. 
but for all of their doctrinal rigor, they don't do anymore. And these works then are almost surely concrete, practical acts of love and service to other people. And probably, as we'll see, witness. And so you get this warning in the second half of verse 5. If you don't repent, I will come to you. This is not a coming at the end of the age. This is a coming by the Christ whom we saw last week in history, in time, now, for judgment on the Ephesian church. Christ has come, He does come, and He shall come. He's always inspecting the church. And He says, I'll come and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Before I said, earlier I said, this is a lethal defect, this lack of love. The removal of the lampstand connotes the end of the existence of the Ephesian church. So this failure of love, even in a doctrinally pure church, is fatal. Jesus doesn't say, look, you got a lot going for you. Your confessions are correct. Your doctrines are correct. Your truth is correct. You're a little weak on the love. I think I'm going to leave you alone. He says, you've left your first love. I'm going to remove you from existence. The church's existence is at stake in the way we love one another and the way we bear witness to the world. The lampstand imagery here almost certainly includes not just love for one another, but light witness going out to the world, right? Because lampstands are made to be lit. Lampstands, which are not put on display and lit, become extinguished. You know, it's often done in these letters, but here there may be a reference to the local situation at Ephesus. The city always had this fear the whole city did, of having to be moved because its harbor was always silting up. And so there was always this idea that you'd have to remove the city back another mile. And so the threat of the removal of the lampstand might have touched directly on a local fear. Remember last week, we mentioned that Jesus is sort of a priestly custodian. Right? He walks among the lampstands like a priest would have walked among the temple and, and handled the lamps in the temple in the Old Testament. But as that priestly custodian who tends to the lamps, he will remove a defective lampstand. Note also here, there's no, no repudiation of the concern for truth and correct doctrine. Jesus does not say, he does not say, you're too concerned about doctrine. He does. In fact, he commends them for that. He absolutely demands truth and love. Truth and faithful witnesses, witness be joined together in the life of the church. That's the point of this letter. Sure, there'll be people who emphasize truth and, 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 and are perhaps not loving or de-emphasize it. There'll be others who emphasize love and there's no concern for truth at all. This church emphasized truth 
but failed in love. And Jesus says, you must marry these two things back together. Fourth, here's the Nicolaitans. You have this in your favor. This is after the correction. Jesus goes back and commends them some more. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Right? The same transfigured Lord who just told them to love one another says, by the way, there are some things I hate. One of them is the practices of this group. We don't know a lot about this group, but their teaching is virtually identified in the letter to Pergamum, another church that we'll look at, Lord willing, soon. It's identified with another little sect called the Balaam sect, and it entails eating food, sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality, which in the book of Revelation almost certainly means spiritual adultery, compromise with the empire. Ephesus, you might remember, Ephesus was the home to this magnificent temple of Artemis, or the temple of Diana. She was known to the Romans as Diana. And this temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's an extraordinary temple. And there were thousands of priests and priestesses there. And there were sacred prostitutes, cult prostitutes. And in addition, Ephesus had two imperial temples dedicated to the worship of the emperor. And in the book of Acts, chapter 19, there's recorded a riot in Ephesus. It's a riot against the preaching of the gospel by the apostles because it clearly threatened the economic well-being of those who sold trinkets, silver shrines of Artemis at this magnificent temple facility. When's the last time the preaching of the church threatened the economy? That's what happened in Ephesus. And so we can safely surmise that the Nicolaitans sought to seduce the people of God into an idolatrous compromise with the imperial cult and with the corrupt pagan culture. This becomes clearer through all the letters. And significantly for John's purposes here, is the root meaning of the term. Nicolaitans comes from two words which mean conqueror of the people. Conqueror of the people. Right, and what is John going to do in the next verse? Or the risen Christ through John. He's going to call the people to conquer. To him who conquers. To him who overcomes. So the Nicolaitans sought to conquer the people, but the church is called to conquer against the forces arrayed against her. And here again... With this sect or group of aberrant uh, people in the church, the Ephesians stand firm. They hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which Christ himself hates. There's no love without this hatred. So finally, the exhortation and the promise. Verse 7, this exhortation is found in all seven letters, right? Uh, It's a call to discernment. It's a call to decision. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus used similar language in his parables. Notice that the words, the speech of the transfigured Christ to, to us, to the church, are the words of the Spirit. 
Who's talking to the churches? Christ. But at the end of every letter it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So Christ comes, he inspects, he walks among his lampstands by the Spirit. And we are all then, in these texts, being called to hear what the Spirit says to us. To repent. And we're being called to these promises. And look at the promise at the end of verse 7. To the one who conquers, or the one who overcomes. This very, the very use of this word in all seven letters, in the call, the motivation, tells us that the history of the church is a scene of cosmic warfare. You have to conquer. You have to overcome. And the promises to the conquerors, while in some sense we partake of them now, they all, all seven of them, have a decidedly future orientation. All the promises to the conquerors in all seven letters are essentially the promise of coming glory in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what's held out to the church under various images to motivate you and me. This is problematic for us because this stuff is so far detached from our imagination and it seems so unreal and so ephemeral that it doesn't actually motivate us. John has one fundamental piece of motivation for you and me in the Christian life. Eschatological glory. He doesn't say, look, things are going to get better next week. Things are going to get better next year. If you do this, you'll never get cancer. If you do that, your kids will be wonderful. If you do this, your portfolio will grow. He has one piece of motivation. Conquer. So that you can be raised in everlasting glory with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're like, ah. Oh. I was looking for something a little more concrete than that. Something a little more short term. You know, something a little nearer. Something that was sort of touched down in my life a little bit more, John. What's with this? That's, that's what he's got. That's what the gospel is. And here the promise entails being granted to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. You know, it turns out, for all of its seeming otherworldliness, this piece of motivation is the only thing that can sustain Men in their suffering and in the agony and in the difficulties and the ambiguities and the frustrations of life. The tree of life. Adam and Eve were cut off from this tree in Genesis. And by the conquering Christ, you're restored to the tree of life. This is a very rich symbol. We saw last week that Jesus himself is the single lampstand in the temple. The Old Testament temple had one lampstand. Revelation has seven. Christ is the one lampstand who lights the other seven. But you know that lampstand in the Old Testament temple in the holy place? That's a stylized tree. It's a tree. It's described in Exodus by this profusion of botanical terms. It has cups and flowers and stems and branches. And thus Christ the lampstand is the tree of life. 
And in addition, this word for tree is used throughout the New Testament of the cross of Christ. Right? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so the healing, redemptive effects of Christ's cross are a tree of life. And what happens at the end of the book? The tree of life reappears again at the end of the book of Revelation as the source of the healing of the nations. This final scene of peace and well-being, of shalom, what our text calls the paradise of God. This is the fundamental human hope. It's the hope of the gospel. In fact, you can see it in many ways um, just in the human heart in general. It's often muted or subdued, but the hope of paradise restored, the hope of glory, the hope of well-being and shalom, the hope of transcending death. And this is what John says, conquer and you can eat at that tree. So the text calls us to endurance, to toiling, to bearing up, but it also calls us to fervent love for the brethren and to faithful witness in the world. You're already on the battlefield. There's this unfolding end-time battle. Christ has conquered. And we're called to conquer. And there are no stalemates in the war. So we have to repent. We have to repent of our lovelessness, our failure to bear witness, to be light. You know, concretely, this may mean doing some actual things that you did at first that you don't do anymore. Like share the gospel. Like feed the poor. Like spend more time with your brethren. There's no private Christianity. One of the ways we handle lovelessness in the modern American church is we basically maneuver around everybody in the church. But there's no private Christianity. So we have to hear what the Spirit says that we might obtain the promise to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. You know who's going to be around that tree of life in the paradise of God? All the people in the body of Christ you don't like. So you got to get to work on it. Love one another. Let your light shine. That the lampstand that is Westminster Presbyterian Church not be removed. Amen. Amen.